Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You know, we've got a duty out there. As much as a, as a doctor has a duty, I think, to push back against the anti-vaccine nonsense or, or scientists to push back against the climate change denialists, historians have a special level of expertise. And if we don't speak up against this stuff, no one else will. And worse, if we don't speak up, it'll often be assumed that, well, it, it must be okay. No historian has debunked this. That's Kevin Cruz. With my other guest, Julian Zelizer. He's the author of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. I speak with them about the roots of the divisions we're living through today and how we can move past the legacy of the 70s. And that time Kevin dunked on Dinesh D'Souza. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners, quick quiz. How many states have enough savings to withstand another recession? Believe it or not, only 16. But why? Hearing a stat is interesting, but understanding the story behind the number is illuminating. Listen to the Pew Charitable Trust's After the Fact podcast to hear the stats and stories that matter. It's available on Stitcher and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Visit pewtrusts.org slash preet to learn more. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is uh, Don Wiggins from Spotswood, New Jersey, calling. Um, I'm wondering if some recent developments may have moved the needle on the possibility of the 25th Amendment happening. We've got those five undocumented meetings between Trump and Putin. We've got the fact that the FBI started an investigation into whether or not our president was acting as a Russian agent. And now we've got the revelation that he is actually contemplating pulling the U.S. out of NATO. Now, all of those things had happened before, but they didn't become public. And I'm just wondering if you think that those revelations may have moved the needle for the people who are making those decisions. Love the show. Uh, take care. Bye. Hey, Don, thanks for your question. And not to disappoint you, but, you know, this discussion of the 25th Amendment, it's interesting, and I understand where it's coming from. And it's born of a lot of frustration and anger and disappointment in the Trump administration. But the 25th Amendment thing is not happening. Among other things, it would require his cabinet to rebel against him. And his cabinet has done no such thing and shows no sign of doing any such thing. The 25th Amendment invocation is even more difficult, as we discussed some weeks ago on the podcast, than impeachment. And I don't know that impeachment is a foregone conclusion either. I'm not even saying necessarily it's correct. But... I think a lot of time should be spent more on talking about the ways in which the administration is undermining norms, undermining important pillars of democracy, including the press, including the courts, including the law enforcement function, and speculation about the 25th Amendment, while interesting, I suppose, probably doesn't get us very far. Sorry, Don. This next question comes from a tweet from Twitter user the Mona Lisa 2 I wonder who has the Mona Lisa 01 question is this. Saw Rudy Giuliani on Meet the Press. He said a president can only obstruct justice if he threatens something corrupt, i.e., I'll kidnap your children, I'll break your legs, are the only things that fall into that category. Seems extreme. Clarify at Preet Bharara. Hashtag Ask Preet. Well, you know, it's a full-time business these days, which I hate to say, and it's a little bit sad, that Rudy has to be not only fact-checked when he appears on national television, but also law-checked. And I can guarantee you 
when he was U.S. attorney of the same office that I once led, his prosecutors brought case after case relating to obstruction or extortion or any other number of federal crimes where the threats did not necessarily take the form, I'll break your legs. Obviously, if you have home run jackpot evidence like, like that, the kinds of threats that the mob makes, that's a great case. But often, it's a lot more subtle. You can obstruct justice merely by telling people how to testify about something without any explicit threat at all. You can also obstruct justice by destroying documents. You can obstruct justice by uh, making implicit threats or you know, suggesting that you might uh, withhold benefits depending on what the other evidence is and depending on the state of the mind of the person doing the obstructing. So this thing that Rudy does by taking the most extreme version of uh, proof you might have in a case and saying that's the threshold of proof you need to bring a case under a particular statute, he does that over and over and over again, and it tends to be incorrect. So yes, it is extreme, and that would make a good case, but it's not the only way to make a case. This last question comes in a tweet from Kristen Compton, who says, what the heck is going on with three question marks? Hashtag AskPreet. Well, thank you for your very specific question, Kristen Compton. <laughs> There's almost too much going on to digest. And I don't have a clear answer. Partly what's going on is, as we've been saying a lot on the show, you have an undermining of lots of institutions in the country. You also have lots of good people who are speaking out about it. I can tell you one thing. There is someone who knows what the heck is going on more than you or I or Rudy Giuliani or the president uh, or BuzzFeed or the New York Times or the Washington Post, and that's Bob Mueller. And one interesting aspect of the whole imbroglio over the last week with the BuzzFeed article and the statement by the special counsel's office taking issue with that article is that here you have Bob Mueller and his team maligned virtually every day by President Trump and his allies over and over and over again. And they could have just kept silent because that article was very bad for the president and it you know got a rise out of a lot of people and had people using the I word impeachment and put him in a very bad light, the president in a very bad light. And they decided to do something that they almost never do to issue a corrective statement that actually helped the president, even knowing that it would cause the president to then attack the press uh, and call them fake news and give him a lot of ammunition to discredit the entire BuzzFeed article, even though the statement doesn't necessarily do that. And the irony there is that this office, led by Bob Mueller, who the president and his allies, as I said, constantly denigrate, attack, accuse, belittle, they're now holding out in a way as a paragon of truth-telling and virtue and relying on the statement of Robert Mueller in this instance to say, hey, believe that guy. So what the heck is going on? I think with respect to at least Bob Mueller's investigation, we'll get some answers in the relatively near future. My guests this week are Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer. Kevin is a professor of history at Princeton University. And Julian is a professor of history and public affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, also at Princeton. Together, they're the authors of a new book, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. I speak with them about the legacy of that tumultuous era and the origins of the divided America we live in today and the art of the historian Twitter beef. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hi, Stay Tuned listeners. As many of you know, we recently launched the Cafe Insider. It's a subscription service that includes the Cafe Insider podcast, co-hosted by Ann Milgram and me. Each week, we break down the news and make sense of what's happening. We are living through historic times, and many people understandably feel lost in the daily deluge of headlines. Our goal is to help you filter the noise and get to the core of the most pressing issues at the intersection of law and politics. The Stay Tuned podcast remains free every Thursday. To get access to the Cafe Insider podcast, bonus clips from Stay Tuned interviews, a weekly newsletter, text alerts, and more, go to cafe.com slash insider and become a member now. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Professor Kevin Cruz, Professor Julian Zelizer, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Great being here. So congratulations on A, surviving the cold. This morning, we're taping on Monday morning, and I think it's like four degrees. 
basically. You seem you we're seem okay. warm though. We're we're doing okay. Um, we're filled con- with the podcast spirit. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that's what heats me up. <laughs> so congratulations on your book. It's called Fault Lines: A History of the United States since 1974. Um, I just wrote a book and I found it very hard. You guys, between the two of you, have written like 300 books. How many books? But 290 of them are Julian's. So, so <laughs> You're it, it really rests on him. We've written a lot. We've written a lot of books, and and I think we both enjoy it, and we both really enjoy doing this one. This was a, our first collaboration, uh, writing, which is a different process yeah. than writing on your own. Can I ask you about that? Maybe this is a dumb question. So, do each of you write a sentence, and then the other guy writes the this, this next sentence, and then you get a, par- a chapter? We we started out that way, where we each kind of we divvied up, and you're like, you're going to be the starting point for this chapter. I'll start this chapter. But the more and more we went, uh, they, they went back and forth between us and just kind of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So all of our hands are on all of this book. Yeah, we start, I mean, we started as a class at Princeton, and we wanted to teach this class about the period you don't study in most history classes. Because oh, it's very recent. It, that's exactly right. Initially, it was lectures, and we each kind of would divvy the lectures up. But as we wrote the book we would each go back and forth on a chapter to the point, like Kevin says, where at least for me, and I think for him, when you read it, I'm not sure who's who at this point, which is for us an achievement. Did you have disagreements? I mean, no. No, really, no. Not really. It was actually You remarkable. agree completely on everything? You know, we had a couple of fist fights, as, as co-authors do. Yeah. No, we had a... You, uh, you historians. <laughs> were wild. You know, historians, so you know how historians you guys are. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, you know, we had a couple, you know, uh, but I don't think anything... Really got past the stage of, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. And we each, I mean, we each specialize on different things. So Kevin does a lot on the grassroots and the kind of social history of politics. I do more on Washington, Congress, and the presidents. When did you start teaching the class? 2012. And why did you pick 1974 as a starting point? It started, I, I had a class I inherited uh, when I started teaching at Princeton in 2000. It was a class uh, called the United States Since 1920. And I'm pretty sure it was created about 1960 because all the other courses in the series were these little 40-year chunks. So by 2000 when I started, it was about twice the size of these other classes. And more and more interesting things had actually happened after 1960 that needed to be talked about. So I was looking for a way to break it in two. There was a breaking point at 74, which is primarily Nixon and Watergate, uh, his resignation there. But there's also a whole bunch of stuff that happens in 73, 74, 75. You've got Roe v. Wade and the busing riots. You've got the oil embargo and really kind of the buckling of the, uh, the American economy. You've got withdrawal from Vietnam and kind of the shattering of American foreign policy. So in this two-year span around 1974, uh, an incredible amount happens. It really does kind of bring the old post-war order to its knees. I had Michael Beschloss on the show not too long ago. We discussed the difference between journalism and history and how much time has to pass before we can really assess a presidency, but I guess the same can be true about an era. How long has to pass, in your guys' view, as historians, before you can adequately sort of judge the period or the leader? I think there's no hard and fast rule to this, meaning every historian, whatever period you're doing, usually you're constantly debating how to interpret a period. So the Civil War is a long time ago in the U.S., but still the debates about it are vigorous. And I think for recent history, uh, there's a lot of space to take the first cut. There's always historians who are the first movers. And we're trying to take a little bit of that role. So we're laying it out. We're offering a first interpretation. We know there'll be more down the line. The other thing we always remembered, because we started as a class, is for younger people, uh, certainly millennials. And this is not modern history. It's ancient history. Yeah. It's ancient history. And barely, they don't have a memory even of 9-11 in terms of yeah. seeing it and feeling it. So when we're writing about the 70s, when we were in our class, you know, taking courses on the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it was the same thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, so think about a, a, a student today sitting in, in a course like ours. 45 years ago, 1974, when I was a freshman in college in 1990, 45 years ago was the end of World War II. Right. Right. That's the level of looking back we've got now. So it really is time to, to start talking about this period as a discrete period. Do you think young people are underserved with respect to history? How do you mean? Well, I don't think classes like yours are that plentiful. Right. Right. So when you have people come, I hadn't thought about it this way, right? when you have people coming into schools like yours, Princeton, or any other school in the country, if there's an absence of classes like yours, people are reading, like I did when I was a government major in college, about the Peloponnesian War. Right. And you're reading Thucydides. And I don't remember there being a class talking about things from a serious historical perspective 
events that happened in the prior 30 years, because maybe people thought that was too recent. But maybe that's a failing. Well, I mean, I, I think so, yes. And certainly that's our intention with the book and with our course. Students need to have some historical perspective on what's going on now. If we talk about, boy, we need to you know train the next generation to deal with these civic issues, part of it isn't simply understanding ancient history or even 19th century history. It's giving some chronology and framework for understanding what the last 40, 50 years are about. Uh, so on an issue like polarization, you can't start with... What happens when President Trump is elected and and how does he tear things apart? You have to understand what was the aftermath of Watergate and how did our entire political system take a new form back then? So one of the points of the book is that there are, from the title, I'm pretty quick, (laughs) fault lines. And there's a lot of division in the country. And I think you guys say and suggest that there's more division now than any other time going back to when. Well, we'll go to the Peloponnesian War. How about that? <laughs> we like to start. Uh, I think I think America was was pretty united during the Peloponnesian War. Yeah, I, probably. Yeah, yeah actually, probably. I would I would, <laughs> I would stick I would stick my reputation on that. It is to some degree. It feels more divided now than ever. But there have always been fault lines in American history. What's really novel about this period, as opposed to the, say the the post war period that preceded it, is that in that period in the forties, fifties, and sixties. We had these fault lines. Obviously, you had, look at it's Martin Luther King Day right now when we're recording this. Look at the racial divisions of that period, a huge fault line. But what you also had at that period were social forces and institutional forces that were pushing against those fault lines to kind of push the country back together in a, you know, kind of a centripetal way, right? The parties were more ideologically diverse. So you had to have some kind of necessary bipartisanship to get anything done. Whether you were a liberal or a conservative, you had to go to the other party to find like-minded people to get the votes. Uh, the economy is booming at this period, the, the post-war industrial economy is taking off. You've got a strong union movement, which really helps lift people into the middle class, paper over some of those racial uh, and ethnic and and religious divisions. You've got uh, a mainstream media, which really is uh, almost monolithic. If you think about the big three networks, a couple of big city newspapers really kind of setting out the same set of information for all Americans to start with and also advancing a general narrative to hold them together. So all that is there. In this period, we've got a new set of fault lines that that came about after those old institutions uh, crumbled. The thing is that nothing is really pushing the country together. In fact, there are increasingly incentives we've seen, and this is what I think maybe makes the fault lines worse than ever, increasingly incentives uh, in the recent decades that are leading Americans to be pushed apart. So think about politics, right? The way in which gerrymandering has increasingly led to people to go to the ideological streams, the way in which the media has reinforced this with with partisan media, first Fox News really on the right, and now to some degree MSNBC and groups like that on the left, really encouraging people to go to their corners, right? There's not a push to the center anymore. Can we pause on that for a second? Because I was fascinated by issues that, that you have discussed relating to the fairness doctrine. And I had never really thought about it in these terms and how the repeal of the fairness doctrine has caused the media to sort of become tribal in the same way that politics has over time become more tribal. Discuss how big a deal that that was. And maybe for, for listeners, first describe what the Fairness Doctrine so that was a, it was a it was a very important moment in this period. So the Fairness Doctrine was a rule that the FCC stuck to since 1949. And basically, if a radio station or TV station wanted space, airspace, in exchange, they had to promise if dealing with a political view... They would present both sides. They wouldn't just present one side or the other. And it was constantly challenged, but it could be legally enforced. People could sue if only one side of a political issue was presented. And uh, by the 1980s, there's a lot of opposition to keeping the rule. Ronald Reagan opposes it. He says uh, there's no need for many regulations, and that's one that should go. He also thought that the mainstream media tended to privilege liberal ideas over conservative ideas. And uh, there were a lot of business people in the media who also wanted to get rid of it because cable is starting to take form in the 1980s. And they're arguing the justification no longer holds, meaning there's endless amounts of space, unlike in the network era. And so there's a big push. 1987, the FCC says, we're not, not going to do it anymore. Congress, the Democrats try to legislate a fairness doctrine, and uh, Reagan vetoes the bill, and it's done. And right after that happens, and we, this is an important story, you have the proliferation of conservative talk radio. This is the era of the Rush Limbo, Bob Grants, and this new approach to news where you can be openly partisan, you could totally present one side, uh, and there are no more restrictions. And 
you know, 10 years later, just about, Fox will go on the air. And this becomes the model of how to do business. So it removed a really important restraint that existed, a counterpoint uh, to more polarized kinds of information. And that's the framework in which many people then would understand and hear about what's going on in Washington. But for the removal of the Fairness Doctrine, there's no Rush Limbaugh, you think? Well, uh, he would have been there, uh, but it would have been hard for the radio networks to put on the show that they put on, meaning... Yeah, and give three hours of equal they, time to someone else exactly, in the afternoon. Exactly the right. Side. They would have been facing pressure. They could have been facing potential uh, legal action, and that was gone. And so that's why you have this happen. Did the liberals, progressives, Democrats, whatever you want to call that side, want to put the Fairness Doctrine back into place because they had, you know, a pure view of balanced discussion on the air or because they like the status quo? And was there, in fact, some truth to what Reagan perhaps said, that there was a, some kind of bias and more opportunities for liberals to have their points of view broadcast on air than conservatives? Is that completely unfair? No, I think that, that that's probably a plausible explanation. I think there was a, a, a comfort with the status quo. I think there was also an awareness, uh, this is purely conjecture on my part, but I, I think there was probably an awareness that there are certain things about the talk radio format that don't really work for liberals. There's a way in, in which the format really does thrive on railing against the establishment and sparking uh, outrage. And and this is a period, even with, with Reagan in, in charge, there was a lot of sense that, that liberalism was still um, doing fine. Wait, liberals do outrage too, no? They do. I mean, one thing that's important... I mean, I don't. No, I'm but even measured. in the pre-fairness doctrine, even though there was this critique, journalists did still stick to they were still striving to be objective. They still checked their impulses to say what they were thinking politically. There were moments like Walter Cronkite criticizing the war in Vietnam, but that was not the professional norm. So there was the criticism that buried in that commentary was a liberal perspective. That's very different than what you see post-fairness doctrine. It's not buried. It was very, very explicit. Liberals had outrage. They tried to replicate this. Never as successful. You had... Uh, hey, look a, at the Air America Network, right, during the, right. during the Bush administration, which was really an effort to copy the conservative talk radio format that had worked so well for conservatives like Limbaugh when they were in the opposition of the 1990s. Now it's the liberals' turn, and we're going to do this. What happens, though, even though you had some high powered uh, uh, folks there. You had Sam Cedar and Ginny Garofalo. Al Franken was there for a while. Uh, if you look at the reviews of the time as, as we did, A, it, it tanks as a business model. They just they don't have the listeners. Uh, and I think it might be because many liberals thought, oh, our version of liberal radio is NPR, right? Which I think is, is a misreading, but I think that's how many people thought of it at the time. But you see in, in the reports of the, uh, about Air America in, the, in 2003, 2004 is this format just doesn't quite work for liberals. The liberals are, are, are trying to give nuance. Uh, they resort more to sarcasm. That doesn't really play on the radio. It played on TV, we saw with The Daily Show and later The Colbert Report. That really takes off. TV's a format where that sort of critique works. Didn't quite catch on the radio. It's interesting. The different mediums maybe are more hospitable to different kinds of ideologies. I'm not aware of many successful late-night conservative bent talk shows. Right. <laughs> and why, online, why is that? I mean, liberals will be very successful in the blogosphere, especially during the Bush administration. That becomes an arena where they're much better. Yeah. doesn't have the scalar scope of Fox News. Do, do you think it was a mistake and bad for America? I mean, I guess this is the implication, but that it was... But I want to hear if you actually want to say this, yeah. that the, the revocation of the Fairness Doctrine was a bad thing. I think it was a bad thing. It broke down one of the last remaining kind of public commons uh, in the media uh, in terms of, of the way in which information was, was processed. That said, I think had it not been struck down and had it remained in place for radio and, and broadcast television, I think the pace at which cable was going would have easily eclipsed it. And so maybe Limbaugh doesn't take off as a as a talk radio host, maybe takes off as a cable news host instead. Uh, this craving for kind of a partisan media was out there and it was going to come about one way or another. Right. I mean, it's a little weird from my perspective, having not studied it at any length at all. So I'm just mouth off. There is an argument that there's something kind of illiberal about the idea of saying that points of view have to be legislated to be broadcast equally. That's the one area in which liberals often say government should not be involved. And maybe they shouldn't have been, but the status quo was good. So there are lots of reasons you say in the book about why we are divided. You talk about the economic reasons, the uh, racial reasons, political reasons, gender, sexuality reasons. How do you rank those? 
Well, we, I mean, we don't. And so but that's, that's why you do it. That's I'm why I'm a historian. You. No, I'm saying, but, <laughs> but, but actually it's, it is a point, meaning. I mean, you have to, you have to put some weight if, to say yeah. that, to, to say there are 19 causes of something, you kind of we rank, could, rank we them a little do. bit. We love to say that and yes. uh, it's all of them. But look, <laughs> if, if the ones we rank are the way our political process is remade in the 1970s is really important. The way primary systems become elevated to, to select presidential candidates, the way in which Congress is reworked organized from gerrymandering to the rules of the House of Representatives. There are really fundamental reforms that take place, and it, they're in the top uh, four of division <laughs> because they create... They create... You, you call them reforms. Yeah, and they, they are reforms. And, and they, right. But it's interesting, like, yeah. linguistically, to say these reforms were enacted and they are one of the principal reasons we have division. Well, the goal of the reform was to make things more partisan. I mean, the reformers in the 70s said bipartisanship's bad because for them, bipartisanship meant these backroom deals with Southern Democrats and Republicans who worked in secrecy, who stifled party leaders on issues like civil rights and didn't allow the parties to have coherent, clear points of view. And so a lot of the reforms are, are literally that. They say we need a more partisan political system, and they are, in fact, trying to heighten the divisions, uh, which they believe will make the political process better. And it happens in media, too. We, one of the, the, my favorite things we found, we found this quote of, of Jan Wenner, who's the head of Rolling Stone in 76. He's talking about the need for a fourth broadcast network that will broadcast the news in a different way. And he goes, yes, we need more than four. We need, we need dozens of these. We need, we need ones that will broadcast to old people and young people. We need ones to African-Americans. We need, we need a conservative news network he's pining for in the time. And that's going to make everything great and better because everyone will have a voice, right? Uh, I don't think he really thought through what that would mean. But there's this real desire in the 70s to go this way. It's, it's not that we stumble into this by accident. There really is a desire to to fracture into uh, a, a kind of a hundred or a thousand pieces, whether it be politics, whether it be economics, whether it be uh, race, an embrace of diversity and distinctiveness and cultural nationalism, and everyone kind of celebrates their own past. There's a real shift here in the 70s, and it goes across the board. And the conservative movements and other, I'm not going to rank them still, but it's still <laughs> up there. It's a big part of our story. And it takes for, today for people to think of the conservative movement as new is difficult. But in the 70s, it really was new. The religious right, preachers and grassroots uh, supporters who wanted to put all kinds of cultural questions on the table. Uh, the new right, which was a more organized form uh, of conservatism. There's various factions to this movement, neoconservative Democrats who want a tougher foreign policy. They're really shifting public debate in a conservative direction. And by 1980, when Reagan's elected, their impact is, is pretty clear. And so they they are a big force of division only in that they, they really open up the conversation about what the nation's basic priorities and policies should be. Talk about economic forces. How are those bringing us apart more than before? I mean, the economy in a lot of ways really does uh, does impact this uh, because you start to see one of the big things that, have, that have undergirded the optimism of the post-war period was the sense that uh, that America works for everybody. Even when you're kind of winking at it as the affluent society and wondering who's left out or Johnson with the Great Society tries to lift people up uh, out of poverty into it, there's, a, uh, there's an optimism about the American economy that it's, it's going to thrive. It really gets brought to its knees in the 70s through a lot of things. There's the oil crisis, which reminds Americans how dependent they are on foreign sources of, of energy. Uh, there's the real decline of, of the industrial sector. You start to see more and more companies uh, struggle in, in America as they're facing new competition from abroad. Think about the auto industry and the challenges from West Germany and Japan. Uh, and as these jobs start to dwindle, as these jobs start to pay less, there are ripple effects here. And so this, you can't simply say, oh, well, let's just look at the economy, because think about the impact the economy has in those changes. By 1976, only 40% of jobs in the United States paid enough to support a family. So it used to be you had a model you could have a breadwinner, usually male, who then provided for the family. The mother stayed at home, took care of the kids, right? That was in, in, for decades in the post-war period, better or worse, that's the norm. Uh, by 1976, uh, that's a minority position to be able to have. And so more and more women have to go to work. The traditional story that I think a lot of people misunderstand about feminism is that feminism happened, women decided to go to work. And then ran into problems at work. It was of necessity. It was of necessity. They go to work. They run into, uh, they get paid less. They're facing sexual harassment, widespread discrimination on the job. And then they decide feminism is something they need for their own lives to, to, to make their own ends meet. But, but economic cycles do just that. They, they work in cycles. 
what I guess I'm not understanding fully, is there are these issues in the 70s, but then you have exuberant times later. You know, the 90s were kind of roaring. Did that undo some of these factors that caused division or not? In other words, why, why is it a static, if you think this is true, a static trend line that economic forces are, are bringing us apart? Well, the two static trend lines that survive or outlive the booms or busts of the cycle, uh, one is, are, are the jobs that most or many middle-class Americans had from the 40s to 50s, which were often in the manufacturing sector. They tended to be unionized. They tended to be pretty secure in terms of a seniority ladder and benefits. Those are not replaced after the 70s with comparable jobs. The shift of the economy is toward service sector jobs, high-tech jobs, where those kind of benefits are not granted. And so you do have changes. It's not always bad. We get out of the 70s. 1984, Reagan's running on a campaign ad that it's morning in America again. Uh, But the middle-class jobs that are doing well are very different, and they don't leave many families with the same kind of long-term sense of how they or their families would be doing. And the other trend, which we talk about all the time today, the growing divide between uh, very wealthy Americans and poor Americans, that's taking off by the 70s. And that, too, in periods of boom, it gets a little better. We saw this during the Obama administration. Because everyone's doing, everyone's doing well enough. Everyone's doing well enough, but it doesn't really alleviate this division that keeps growing. And so those are two structural changes that are rooted in the 1970s that I think undercut some of the good feeling that might come, actually, from economic recovery. What do you think the role of concern about economic equality is right now in the country? Can I ask you about today, even though you're a historian? Sure, yeah, absolutely. I don't want to wait 30 years. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think it's an important issue across the board. It just matters how people interpret it, right? So if you think about the two people who are probably zeroing in on this issue the most of a 2016 cycle, it was Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, right? And they came at it from very different perspectives. Both had their hands on uh, this this fundamental problem. Uh, they just they spun it in wildly different directions. So for Trump, it becomes a populist message, a protectionist message, and, and kind of going to shut down the American economy and we're going to save the American worker that way. Uh, Sanders, a rather different set of, of policy prescriptions there, right? But they both understood this was kind of a powerful uh, issue in the moment, and, and I don't think it's going away. There's a lot of talk about income inequality, and it's a huge issue and a problem. But typically in the country, from my old recollection of history books I've read and classes I've taken, everyone had this optimism, as you're describing, and people who were on the lower end of the economic spectrum didn't so much begrudge the people who were very wealthy because they had open optimism and said, well, I can be like that guy one day because American society is so mobile. Was that a bad way to be thinking? And were they just being duped by wealthy people because there's not as much mobility as you might think? Or was it good for people to have that view because it maybe made them work hard to try to pull themselves up into higher socioeconomic status? I think you could see either perspective. I mean, I I do think there's something uh, good about the optimistic part of believing that this is still a country in which anyone can make it to the top, uh, even though the uh, the results of that, I think, are becoming uh, less and less likely as we go on. Uh, but I think there's there's largely a negative side to this. And, and you, uh, the figure that always comes up to me is when you talk about the 1%, who are we talking about? Who do people imagine we're talking about? And so in, in the 2000 campaign, Al Gore insisted that his tax proposal was only going to raise taxes on, I think, on the top 1%. The problem was is that pollsters went out and asked Americans uh, if they were in the top 1%. 19% of the people, I think, thought they were in the top 1%. 20% thought they would be in the top 1% within five years. Right. right. So he's talking about the top 1%, and this policy is only going to affect those people. And yet the American people, almost 40%, think that he's talking about them. Right. So then they, they resist this issue because, hey, Al Gore is talking about me or, or me in five years. Uh, and so you find real resistance to this policy proposal, which would have actually made their lives, I think, a little bit better. Uh, but because they, they bought into this this mythology that they're going to be the 1%, if not already, then soon, uh, it undercuts that. And it's not, I mean, it's not totally static in that. So the period before this book has two things that are really important to giving that optimism some bones. Uh, union jobs were very significant in the economy, and they're growing during that period from the 30s to the 70s uh, in places like Michigan. And they are providing jobs where you really can, you and your children, 
have some kind of decent wage and decent benefits and pathway to success. And you had a social safety net created by the federal government, which wasn't simply poverty programs. It was Medicare. Uh, so you understood your parents and grandparents would have health care and you would, social security. So we, we created these mechanisms that, that certainly didn't, it wasn't real that everyone was going to be rich, but there was a pathway to middle-class life and both of those have eroded since the 70s. Union jobs have eroded, and the social safety net has also eroded. And so I think that's an important story uh, of the in-between. And you think the perception has increased that those things have eroded as well? Because the perception is part of all of this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So talk about how race and gender have played a role in connection with your thesis. Well, okay, so I'll, I'll start with race. And this is one where, again, we talked about there were had been fault lines in the previous period. And this was a fault line that many Americans at the end of the period are thrilled to see come down. There's concern about political polarization. There's definitely concern about uh, the economic crisis. There's a lot of fighting over gender and sexuality. But on race, at first, everyone is really thrilled, or most people are really thrilled, uh, that the old walls of segregation and institutionalized discrimination have crumbled in the country thanks to the changes of the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act. These are landmark uh, revolutionary laws which really transform the country. What happens, though, is that in the 70s, Americans quickly discover that desegregation is not the same thing as integration, right? Just because you've broken down the laws that keep people apart doesn't mean they're going to naturally flow together. And so there's a movement in the 70s, a movement that is then soon in reflected in the law and politics, which really does celebrate a diversity, cultural nationalism. And this is across the board. If you, if you look at, at whites, this is the period when they're discovering their own ethnic heritage. So, so to, what does it mean to be an Italian-American or Polish-American or German-American or whatever, or an Irish-American? Uh, but it's being felt across the board. And what happens is that you've got the uh, American society in terms of race and ethnicity increasingly becoming uh, much more fragmented. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of communities are, are kind of happy to be, to have their own space, to thrive on their own. But what it means is that we don't have the kind of common ground that civil rights activists had imagined when they were talking about integration in the 60s. It's rather different in the 70s, and it only continues to fragment across the, the decades that come. And you have, I mean, the shift in the 70s is you're moving away from issues such as can we have laws that uh, allow for segregation or can we have laws that disenfranchise voters to what's called institutional racism? How does racism work when no one might intentionally be racist, but the structure of how our criminal justice system works, the structure of how residential zoning works, all of these are at play in continuing to create a segregated society. And those are tougher questions in some ways to quickly resolve. And they start to open up pretty big divisions. You see this when you have government policies for school busing in the 1970s and to essentially move a body of children uh, into another school. And you have fierce, violent responses in places like Boston, not in the South, to these kinds of changes. You have legal battles over affirmative action, which is also another variant of dealing with these kinds of institutional racism. And now with Black Lives Matter, we, we write a lot about that. We're really tackling how does this work in policing, in the prison system. Uh, and these have become incredibly, incredibly divisive without the turning point of the 64 civil rights legislation or the Voting Rights Act. We haven't reached that yet. Yeah. I mean, people think you pass a law, that solves the problem. Laws are really hard to change, particularly those kinds of laws. And they were, as I know you folks have documented time and time again. But culture is even harder, harder to change. And minds are very hard to change. What do you make of I know, Julian, you've written about this, I think, just this past weekend, of the way in which uh, certain politicians will co-opt the ideas of people with whom they probably would have disagreed in the time. And as Kevin already mentioned, we're recording this on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, said a couple of things this past weekend, essentially justifying the building of a wall upon the vision of Martin Luther King. Julian, do you have a response? Well, yeah. So I wrote a piece about that for my CNN column, and I, I found it to be really ridiculous, meaning... Uh, look, <laughs> that's, that's a historian, that's a historian. historian term. I could use different terms, but I will uh, be civil because a lot of the... It, it's not simply the wall. This administration has stood for many policies that are 100% antithetical to what 
King and the civil rights movement were about. So whether you're talking about voting rights, the administration has moved against those. Building a wall instead of tearing walls down or the humane treatment of people trying to uh, seek access to our country, to Charlottesville. I mean, this is a president who, as we all know, literally wouldn't take a stand, a strong stand against uh, a new generation of uh, white nationalist Nazi power. So I think there's no space for someone from the administration to invoke King. And I do believe people from different perspectives... There were conservatives, for example, in the 70s who took elements of what the anti-war and civil rights activists of the 60s were talking about, such as direct participation in politics. And I thought that was okay. They had different objectives. But this is an administration that's almost trying to dismantle what King stood for. So that's why I wrote a strong article. So so why stick with it. Amen, (laughs) (laughs) Professor. But so why does a politician like Pence do that? Because there are lots of bases on which you could attempt to justify yeah. building a wall or having all sorts of other policies. Why invoke King? Is it because King has become so much a part of American, the, the fabric of America and how we think about America, that you gain some points with some yeah. community because you invoke Martin Luther King and you, and you give the appearance that you embrace other aspects of King's legacy? You invoke a very narrow vision of Martin Luther King Jr. Look, for a lot of America, Martin Luther King is frozen in time, August 28th, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the I Have a Dream speech. They can quote the two minutes of it, which they saw in the eighth grade uh, in the civics class or social studies class. That's all they've seen. Right. What we have to remember is, A, that speech itself was incredibly controversial at the time. And conservatives were outspoken about about King being an agitator who was standing against law and order. And that speech itself, we, we've made it seem really anodyne, but it really was radical at the time. It, it drew a lot of criticism at the time. It has since become acceptable. And it's become acceptable largely because conservatives have embraced uh, what they've advanced as colorblind conservatism. Uh, and this speaks to Julian's point, which once you've moved beyond identifying actual living and breathing racists, and instead you're trying to dismantle uh, institutionalized racism, these people will say, well, look, we're supposed to be a society who doesn't see color anymore. And how can we have color conscious policies, right, in terms of affirmative action or things like that? Uh, That's a sin against King. That's, A, a perversion of what King said. King was alive when affirmative action begins and is incredibly outspoken in favor of it. But it's become fashionable. Gingrich started to do this in the 90s, and it's, it's picked up speed since then. It's become fashionable for conservatives to seize on that one speech in order to to co-opt King to their point of view. The problem is that King had five more years of his life in which he was uh, increasingly more and more outspoken, more and more moving to the left, more and more willing to take on the institutions of America. Uh, King, before his death, is an outspoken opponent of American militarism, uh, of the military industrial complex, of what it does, of how it saps American priorities, of the violence it does abroad. He is outspoken in condemning capitalism. Uh, He is advocating a form of socialism by the end of his life. He is calling for radical challenges. He is is calling on his followers in 1967 saying, let us be dissatisfied. Let's be filled with the divine dissatisfaction. His final address of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, is really uh, what would be regarded at the time, certainly as a rabble-rousing speech. And today, if we in full it's not something I think Mike Pence would really agree with uh, in any way, shape, or form. Right, and part—I mean, part of what's happened is you have this debate with with cons- the conservative movement since the '70s in terms of what's the relationship of conservatism and race. And you've had controversial moments like Reagan's speech uh, in Mississippi, which takes place close to where civil rights activists were killed in the 1960s. Or you have Lee Atwater in 1988 playing on the Willie Horton ad to, to play on racial animosity. But you have seen a shift in the last few years where the ambiguity on a lot of racial issues for many Americans has fallen away and conservatism has more closely aligned uh, squarely with the reactionary forces to the civil rights agenda. So I think with with Vice President Pence, it's just a purely and pretty simplistic symbolic effort to say there's more to us than that, but it runs right against the whole administration's agenda. So obviously you spend a lot of time talking about the forces that divide us and have made us, a lot of Americans, at odds with each other. I want to talk about what some things are that unite us. And, you know, politicians get up all the time, and Barack Obama did it, and he wrote himself to the White House in part on this idea that he and others say on a fairly regular basis, there's more that brings us together than that divides us. Is that true or is that nonsense? 
I think it's largely nonsense. Whoa. It's, 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 it's a perennial that, that a politician... It's very depressing. I, I, look, I get that a lot. I, I, my first book was about the Klan and neo-Nazis. My second book was about religious nationalists. I get this a lot. You, you've depressed me. I'm not really selling the book here, but here we go. But I do think it is. it, it can be a bit of a lie that we tell ourselves. I, I think Obama meant it sincerely. He certainly worked to try to bring about what he called a post-partisan politics. Right. Well, it's sort but, of aspirational. I mean, It's we, aspirational, we, we, sure, should, sure. Just before you get yourself yeah. in a lot of trouble for being very cynical and negative... You do agree that it's a thing to work for. To, oh, sure. It's a good thing it's, to work towards. That's part of the reason you wrote the book. It's a thing. It's absolutely a thing to work for. But but I think what we show in the book is that there is just so much working against that in the current moment uh, that it's it, it's a naive hope that I think Obama had that he was going to suddenly reach across the aisle, Republicans that were going to clasp his hand and make things work because they cared about the country. What we saw instead were that Republicans under Eric Cantor in the House, really, and, and Mitch McConnell in the Senate, realized that their own personal gain would come from denying any sort of bipartisan outreach. Right. And, and again, if you look across the board, it's it's in politics. It's in it's certainly in our media, these incentives to uh, to not reach across the aisle, but instead to move to the corners. I mean, there are ways to look back and say, and, and we do, that there are similar, more similarities in certain parts of our lives. So if you look at the world of commerce and how uh, we consume things and what we watch, the country is more alike today than it was in 1961 or 1960. We, sh- we shop on Amazon or we, wa- we literally watch the same forms of entertainment. And that's actually not trivial. I, I, I do think there's something that binds together a person living uh, in rural Iowa and suburban New Jersey. Well, it's still depressing exist. to me that the example you give of what binds us together is Amazon. Well, that, I got it. But, <laughs> and, but the second part is part of our book is it's not all bubbling up tension. Some of this is created by the way we do business in different parts of our life, the way the media does business, the way politicians do business. So implicit in our story is if we had a moment to really think through how our institutions work, like we did in the 1970s, think of real reforms, uh, whether through government or the private sector, there is a possibility to create different kinds of incentives that don't play to the most divisive parts of our culture. But the interesting thing about all this is as a political message, it works. And it works in part because people do want to believe whether or not it's true fully and whether or not it's fully realized at this moment. I think most Americans want to believe in the idea that there's something that binds us together and that is stronger than what divides us. Oh, absolutely. The, the problem is that in their imagination, what binds us together, it looks something quite like their own personal politics, right? And, and so they imagine that their own point of view really does capture a majority of the country, and if we can all just agree on the things I already believe in, we'll be fine. And they live in a world in which increasingly their own communities are increasingly homogenous. Their media they consume is increasingly homogenous. They don't get exposed to other perspectives, and so they come to believe this. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how you two esteemed professors at Princeton who have written a thousand books conduct yourselves in the public square. And both of you are on Twitter. Kevin, you're very prolific on Twitter. Uh, Why do you do that? The short story is I started on Twitter because my last publisher made me. First, it was just kind of a, on this day in history, this happened. It was kind of very boring stuff. But that coincided with a couple things. One was the summer of 2015, right after I started, was the flap over Confederate monuments. And I saw a lot of nonsense on Twitter uh, that was just presenting some wrong history. So it led me to sort of wade in and, and start to push back on that. That was something I had some expertise in. And then the the, the, the political uh, campaign for 2016 really heated up, and there was a lot of this nonsense being thrown out there uh, by the candidates uh, and by others. And so that really led me to really engage on Twitter in a way I, I hadn't before. And, and again, I'm not the only one who does it. Julian does it too. Lots of other historians are out there doing this. You know, we've got a duty out there. As much as a, as a doctor has a duty, I think, to speak, uh, to push back against the anti-vaccine nonsense or, or scientists to, to push back against the climate change denialists, historians have a special level of expertise. And if we don't speak up against this stuff, no one else will. And worse, if we don't speak up, uh, it'll often be assumed that, well, it, it must be okay. No historian has debunked this. I, like Kevin, really believe uh, that if you want to do it, there's an obligation for some people in the academy to join this raucous public square and to try to connect what you're doing in your writing, 
and in your uh, scholarly thinking to the real world problems that we face. It's a long tradition. I've always been proud to be part of it. I must say, for all the critics, though, there's been many scholars who will say, love reading your op-eds, or I love seeing you, and thanks for doing this. Not because it's one side or the other, but just to providing that kind of analysis instead of the just two screaming heads next to each other. Well, can I put in my two cents? Because I think it's great. I think we need more of it. To the extent you can encourage others of your colleagues in various fields to educate the public on things. Look, I didn't expect when I was, you know, overseeing the U.S. Attorney's Office that I would be on Twitter talking about legal issues or going on CNN or having a podcast. But there is, I think, in in multiple areas, my own area, the, the law, there's a huge hunger on the part of thoughtful people who want to be good citizens, who have not paid enough attention to how the law works, how Congress works, how law enforcement in particular works. And now when they see those things sort of entering a period of crisis, they want to learn about those things and they they don't go to Princeton and they can't walk into a classroom. And the same is true about history. And when they see people, particularly now when you have administration officials and politicians, I think, who are capable of saying things that are not true, historically not true, literally documented, you know, able to be documented, and then other things that are sort of more a question of opinion and whether their analysis and characterization is correct. People want to know, and they look to folks like you to say, well, what's the truth? I mean, one example, which I guess we can get to now, is there seems to be this interest on the part of some conservatives or quote-unquote conservatives to lay claim to a great civil rights track record going back from Lincoln but into almost the present day and certainly during the 60s. And for some reason, a historically like to say, well, all the bad things that happened with respect to race were done by Democrats. You know, so let me ask Kevin this question. When you were writing your PhD thesis, did you think that you were going to end up one day, you know, dunking on Dinesh D'Souza no, on Twitter? No, God, no. No. I didn't even assume a lot of this was controversial. I talk about a lot of these Southern segregationists and note that they're Democrats because that's what they were. It's not, as some of these people try to claim, that it's a, something that historians are hiding. That we're trying to bury the past. We write about Southern Democrats being segregationists uh, all the time. What is amazing to me is is that we have to then spend time on Twitter pushing back against uh, that nonsense or the, the you know what was the Civil War about? We've kind of hashed this one out by now. We we know it's about slavery. It's not a not a big secret, uh, but yet we still have to go back and push back against people who are claiming it's it's about anything but. For some people who are not familiar, I have some passing familiarity with Dinesh D'Souza, uh-huh, yeah. who my office prosecuted for a crime that he committed, and he admitted he committed it. His lawyer said in open court, there's no defense to the crime. He got pardoned by the president. He says a lot of things about me. I choose not to engage him. Mm-hmm. But what was the thing that caused you to engage? What caused me to engage was, was that I'd seen his threads. And, and at first, I, I just kind of laughed them off because they were they were literally things like, did you know that that segregationists were Southern Democrats? And it kind of told with this breathless revelation. And it was the most obvious thing. You know, did you know George Wallace was a Democrat? Yes, it's a standard part of the story, right? We all know this. And so I used to just laugh it off. And then I realized that he was not only um, had a lot of people who weren't laughing him off but were taking him seriously, but then in when people would challenge him, he would say, no historian has ever has ever challenged my fact. And I thought, <laughs> right. okay, well, then then this is on us, yeah. right? And so to engage with him, I decided I'm never going to convince him. I'm, I mean, either he's a true believer in this or it's a, I think it's a very successful con. Either way, he's not going to swerve off this. But there are a lot of people out there in the middle who don't know one way or the other, who are confronted with these arguments in the wild. Uh, maybe they see the tweets. Maybe it's a, someone is you know, throwing them out at a cocktail party or a barbecue or whatever. Uh, they don't have the ammunition to respond. And so... Uh, what I and other historians on Twitter like to do is to not only offer uh, the rebuttal to this, uh, to give the standard historical interpretation, but also, this is where Twitter, I think, is, is even more useful than some of these other forms we use, like op-eds, is that we can provide the actual evidence. In today's climate, which on Twitter is increasingly he said, she said, who knows, it's easy for me to say not just, I'm an historian, trust me, but rather, I'm an historian, here's how it is, and here are the documents, you read them yourself. I had a moment... Before I was with CNN, I did all the networks. So Fox asked me to come on. A producer calls me. He says, will you come in and do a segment on why the Great Society didn't work? So I said, well, I'll come on, but I actually think a lot of it worked. And I've argued that, and so I'm happy to talk about that. So the producer's like, fine. I go in. It's live TV. I go in the studio. Host says, so, Professor Zelizer, you don't think the Great Society worked? <laughs> and so you have the moments, live TV, but a little like, well, what? where do I go with this? And then I 
kind of laid out my argument, knowing he would never be swayed of of why a lot of these programs really have lasted and had a huge effect. And and for me, it was look, uh, you know, I don't want to remove myself from a place like this, where at least for a few minutes I can contribute this other perspective based on on the facts. And I think, like you said, like Kevin said, even if it's very difficult and contentious, can't remove all these voices. They're needed. Yeah, I think a lot of people appreciate it, and I wish people would do more of it. Among your students, is there something you think they get wrong about history more than other things? Not really a specific issue, but but I think they come into a history course with a belief that the period they're living through is the most fractious and divided the country's ever been, uh, and that there used to be some golden age in which everyone got along. This is the nostalgia of their of their parents maybe glossing them. And so I think to some degree, actually, they like knowing that America has long been uh, a conflict, has long been a series of debates and, and struggles, and uh, and that it hasn't always been as placid as I think they've been led to believe by their parents. For me, it's just that individuals, they, they come into the classroom, like many of us, and they look to individuals as the cause of every problem that we have in a given moment. And what you can really open them up with history is to take them back four decades, three decades, or hundreds of years and really start to gain a sense of the roots of the issues that we are dealing with in 2018 and 19. When you give a long-term perspective, you really have a a flavor for for why this is happening and why we haven't resolved certain issues. And it's great to open up a student that way. We wrote this whole book before President Donald Trump was even a candidate. It wasn't part of our thinking, and we added at the end a chapter on it and an epilogue on it. But I remember very clearly when President Trump, when Donald Trump was elected, some student tweeted out, you, you were probably barely on Twitter, which yeah. is funny. You know, thank you for the course, because I kind of get how we're at yeah. this place yeah. and why this just happened. And that's really what we aim to do. And I hope you know, students in any classroom or readers of a book or listeners of a podcast can start seeing problems that way. So as you have written this book and it's sort of backward looking, obviously the implications are for the future and you want people to think about the future and we live going forward into the Mm -hmm. future, I'm told. What's your sense of where we're going and how we can make the future better based on the findings you've made? One of the most positive parts of the book, which is nonpartisan, is that social movements have really mattered in this period. And the conservative movement had a huge impact on how we think about issues and presidential politics. Uh, More recently, Black Lives Matter, the Parkland student movement have put issues on the table. And we see throughout this book how uh, average people can really shape national debate. In our Reagan chapter, it's about how the nuclear freeze movement really caused problems for the administration and pushed them in a different direction. So in terms of the future, that's a lesson I always talk about, that the sense of paralysis doesn't actually match the history of how these movements can uh, change our country. Professors, I would rather talk to you for another few hours than go back out into the cold. But As would we. Our time, our time has come to an end. Thanks for, Thanks having, for, having, us. Very Thanks for much. having us. Thank you. So, folks, if you listened to last week's podcast, you heard me say at the end of the show a few words about Enes Kanter, who plays basketball for the Knicks and who is of Turkish descent and who is in kind of a fight with Turkish President Erdogan. And because prosecutors there have suggested, based on their dispute over someone named Fatula Gulen, that Enes Kanter is a terroristic threat, he wasn't able to travel with his team to play basketball in London for fear of being picked up on a red notice and basically taken back to Turkey to be imprisoned and perhaps even worse. So I wanted to draw people's attention to that story because I think it's important and to an op-ed that he wrote in the Washington Post. And just a quick epilogue to that. So Sunday night, Ennis Cantor expressed his appreciation for Stay Tuned, the podcast, and also that commentary. And he tweeted out on Sunday night, Appreciate former U.S. attorney Preet Bharara covering my story on his podcast, Stay Tuned. Thanks, Preet. And he attached something that I've not seen before, a video montage to go along with that portion of the podcast from last week. So anyway, I'm glad Ennis was listening, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad we're getting the story out. Good luck. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.